Welcome to the Rebel and Be Well podcast, hosted by Krista Rimel, registered nurse, founder and CEO of Lifestyle Medicine Retreat Center, The Point Retreats, which is located amidst the woods and waters of northern Minnesota. During her podcast, Krista will interview experienced and successful healthcare professionals on outside-the-box health topics. During their time together, they will have in-depth discussions with trusted medical and health and wellness leaders to discover what they do to stay well using traditional and non-traditional health practices. Experts will share not only what, but why they practice the holistic lifestyle medicine they do and the science that backs their less-than-mainstream ideas. You'll hear the real and relatable personal health struggles of healthcare providers and what rebelling outside of the traditional healthcare system did to better their lives, careers, and health. Tune in to listen and learn the mind-body-spirit practices from conventional health experts who share hope and inspiration from honest stories of healing while reflecting the scientific-based evidence to wisely guide the inner rebel inside you. It's time to rebel and be well. Dr. Loie Lenars to the Rebel and Be Well podcast. Loie, I'd like to take a moment to introduce you to our audience by sharing your bio so they can get to know you a little bit and your background. Dr. Loie Lenars is a physician, educator, and facilitator who works with individuals and teams to help them develop their capacity to maintain resilience and passion in their work. She has over 35 years of experience working with clinicians, hospitals, healthcare systems, and educational institutions, helping them to identify the values, purpose, and calling that bring them to their work. In her work, she seeks to create an environment that helps individuals and teams build their capacity to explore their intellectual and emotional learning edges. Loewy received her undergraduate degree in philosophy from the University of Minnesota and her medical degree from the University of Minnesota Medical School. She completed her family medicine residency in 1984 and spent 12 years in private practice before her practice became part of a large healthcare system. She spent 10 years as Fairview's chief clinical officer and has been a clinical professor at the University of Minnesota since 1984. In 2007, she was awarded the Bush Foundation Medical Fellowship, during which she had the opportunity to study adaptive leadership with Dr. Ron Heifetz at Harvard and became a facilitator through the Center for Courage and Renewal. Loie lives in Golden Valley, Minnesota with her husband, where they raise their three children. In addition to her passion for healthcare and learning, she loves to garden, sing, spend time in the outdoors, and enjoy the company of family and friends. And I'm going to add her new baby grandson. Dr. Lowy will be joining us at two future retreats in 2021, our Rebel and Be Well Courage and Renewal Retreats for Healthcare Professionals. We have one that will take place in April of 2021, and now a second one that we've added in August of 2021. And I do want to mention that M Health Fairview will be sponsoring our AMA CME credits at both of these retreats. Personally, I am eager to learn more about Loie's professional journey, as she has ample experience and wisdom as both a practicing clinician and healthcare leader, and anyone who has tried to walk in both of these shoes knows it can be a challenge. Dr. Loie holds a deep passion to ensure every clinician and healthcare leader maintains personal and professional health and well-being. Loie, I love that as the two of us continue to prepare for our retreats ahead, as you said recently, we seem to be a match made in heaven. So we'll let our audience know exactly what that means as our conversation unfolds. 
So welcome, Loie. Thank you for being here today. Thank you, Krista. I'm glad to be here. I would love to hear a little bit more about your background in what initially took you from being a philosophy major to going into medicine and healthcare. I'm not sure there's an easy answer to to that question, Krista. If I think back to finishing high school, I knew at that point that I wanted to go to medical school or I thought I wanted to go to medical school, but I also was drawn to having a degree in philosophy for reasons that completely escaped me. I just knew it was what I wanted to do. And so I decided to pursue both of that, those, knowing that most students who do pre-med get an undergraduate degree in one of the sciences. And what I've found over the years is that my degree in philosophy has helped me greatly in um, considering the ethical issues that arise as a physician, and also in pondering those larger questions that impact us as clinicians. That makes perfect sense. And you know, as I read your bio again, in preparation for our interview, and I, I reread that you were a philosophy major, I see that in you. You're very mindful about how you approach some really important topics. So as a physician, my hunch is that has really benefited you and probably your patients and colleagues and staff for many years. You're very intentional with the words you use, which is a really unique and great quality. How did you go then from becoming a practicing physician into leadership? What compelled you to step from the clinical world to the administrative world? You know, if you're going to run your own practice, you need to know how to do the administrative part of the business. So my first experience with that was uh, running a very small practice with one other physician, Eventually, uh, the practice was five clinicians, four doctors and a nurse practitioner. We did our own payroll, paid our own bills, did our own schedules, figured out you know, how to hire and fire people. When we sold the practice to Fairview in 1995, we needed to identify somebody at the clinic who was going to be the lead physician that connected with Fairview. And kind of by default, it was me of the five of us. And so that was, you know, my first introduction to it was a reluctant one, frankly. I, I guess I'd say that I found that some of what I needed to do in those situations came pretty naturally. And I actually believe that that has a lot to do with what you just referenced, that I seek to be as intentional in what I say as I can be and in what I do. And I also seek to listen carefully to people. And after about two years, I was asked to step into the role that became defined as the chief clinical officer role at Fairview. And in truth, I spent about two months deciding whether or not to say yes to that. And really, I pondered it not only uh, with my life partner and husband, but also with a small group of friends who I consider my personal board of directors who really kind of keep me on the right emotional and spiritual path. Mm, I love that. It's so important to have your own personal board of directors. You're lucky. It sounds like you have, have a good one that's led you along the way. And so they said yes. And how many years did you spend in administration and leadership? Before I answer how many years I spent in administration and leadership, I actually want to say they didn't 
say yes. They asked me questions that helped me know that yes was an okay answer, or they made observations. I mean, my husband made the observation that I got immediate and very positive feedback from my patients on a daily basis, and that was not likely to happen once I took a more administrative role, even though I was still practicing, so I still got to see patients. But they asked me questions like, what does this mean you're giving up? And what draws you to it? I spent 10 years in that role in about 2007. So I'd actually been in the role for about eight years at that time. I could feel for a variety of reasons that it was time for me to consider what I was going to do next. In considering that, that's when I actually applied for uh, the Bush Medical Fellowship and was granted one late in 2007. And when you're granted a Bush Fellowship, you have... I believe at that point it was three years to complete it. And so I waited a year before, actually I waited 18 months before I started my year-long fellowship. So you had your personal guides really lead you to the right answer, which was yes, you took the leap of faith Mm -hmm. into the administrative role. And I don't know that everyone can appreciate what a change that is. You know, you spent what, 10, you know, eight to 10 years to become a medical doctor and then to take on an administrative role as your primary position does mean you're giving up a bulk of, you know, what you probably originally went to school for. Although clearly, as you and I both know, we need really strong clinical healthcare leaders. Um, And so I applaud you for doing that because it's not always easy to make that change. It wasn't easy. You know, when I did my Bush Fellowship, part of what I concentrated on was how to help clinicians, doctors, nurses, other clinicians learn how to lead. Because often what happens when we ask, especially nurses and doctors in healthcare, to step into leadership roles, the fact that they have innate leadership skills is seen and then they're plunked into a role without ever develop, deliberately developing their skills as a leader. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it felt at some times, and I was fortunate, I had a boss who very deliberately developed me. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, I did not have many other physicians who could mentor and role model mm-hmm. for me. It, it would be kind of like taking a medical student who you could see had great skills in one or another specialty or inclination towards and just kind of plunking them into it without having them do a residency and get the the experience on the job, mm-hmm. so to speak. What a great analogy, because I think it is really hard for people to understand. It's hard for healthcare professionals to understand. You know, we've talked about this in our conversations, but a lot of times they'll pull a physician or a nurse to be in leadership with no formal education and leadership or experience or uh, mentorship. And there's kind of this us versus them scenario between administration and frontline staff and all of a sudden frontline staff go, yes, you know, one of our own is going to be a leader. They're going to save every, you know, person, every professional and solve all of our problems. And then you get to administration and you, you see things from a very different lens. And the pain point in that of kind of wearing both hats can be quite challenging. So I applaud you for having 
you know, taken that step. I'm glad you had a mentor to lead you along the way. I deeply appreciate your passion that came out of this to then help foster other um, healthcare leaders and recognize the importance of that. And so is that what led you into hosting and leading and guiding retreats? Indirectly, yes. I'd say there were things that led me into becoming a facilitator of retreats around clinician well-being. And frankly, the first was recognizing my own diminishing resilience Mm -hmm. as I was in a leadership role and still practicing and feeling worn out from it. Realizing that there are very few places where we are taught how to maintain our own resilience. Mm-hmm. And I'll speak from the perspective of a physician since that's what I am. It's not something generally talked about in medical school. I was fortunate enough to have been in a residency that had a support group for the residents. And so I had had that modeled for me in that residency, which mm-hmm. which was a huge benefit to me mm-hmm. and, to, and to my classmates and colleagues. Um, but that was a rarity in the country when I was a resident. It was a, enough of a rarity that I actually went on to facilitate that support group after I finished residency and I facilitated it for 35 years. Wow. And I would get asked to speak at conferences about it because mm-hmm. People wanted to know more about how you did something like that. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that really impacted my sense of we need to figure out ways to to build the resilience of physicians. And again, physicians and nurses were really where my focus was. Seeing what happened to my colleagues when really difficult things happened for them And there was nowhere for them to go to manage that. Those of us who are clinicians go into the work we do because we hope to help and heal. Mm -hmm. And when something goes poorly, when Mm -hmm. someone is harmed, even when that harm isn't because there was something we did mistakenly, Mm -hmm. we suffer. Mm -hmm. And that secondary trauma or that secondary suffering that we have isn't something until very recently that's been talked about or researched or addressed. I know without any doubt that it has cost many doctors and nurses um, a, a lot of pain. So being able to give them ways of being, I rarely talk about it as tools, really ways of stepping into their work that allow them to stay more resilient felt like a new calling to me. Hmm. And it was actually having that realization and having that understanding that at my core, what I am is a teacher. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean, I seek to help people learn Mm -hmm. as much from inside of themselves is from what's presented to them from the outside world. Realizing that is what brought me to apply for a Bush Fellowship. And you bring up such a great point, Loie, and thanks for being vulnerable and sharing that. You know, we can only take healing as far as we've gone, usually ourselves. And when we as physicians or nurses are experiencing a great deal of pain, as you said, and that secondary trauma 
you know, it can really impede us as healthcare professionals and, and all of us go into the profession to be healers. But we're not taught in medical school or nursing school. When you see something traumatic, when someone passes unexpectedly or expectedly, there's there's a trauma there. And then we kind of just go on. It's like one of the odd professions where you have life and death moments consistently. And then you go and pick up, you know, Johnny and Susie from soccer and make dinner and do laundry. And there's this deep discord in kind of our professional life and our personal life often. And we don't allow ourselves time to reconcile what you go through as professionals. And thank goodness there are leaders such as you who've said, hey, time out. Like, we got to look at this. And it's still not common. You know, you mentioned it wasn't common, you know, for the 35 years that you led that. And I still think it's it's kind of an anomaly in our healthcare system and fortunately gaining more attention and recognition. And hopefully this year, maybe even more so because I think it's um, undisguisable how much trauma our healthcare professionals have gone through during this pandemic. You, what you have taken on is desperately needed. And I know that took some vulnerability on your part to kind of first look at that yourself and then be willing to bring something new to your colleagues. So how was that for you when, you know, that's kind of your, a bridge between your being the traditional physician and leader. And then you kind of brought up this non-traditional thought around physician resilience. How difficult was that for you, that process? I don't recall it being difficult. Okay. I do recall it being arduous. Mm-hmm. I might compare it to doing a really strenuous hike. Hmm. You know, and, mm-hmm. and needing to pay attention both to how I was feeling and my surroundings. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to something you said a few minutes ago. You, basically what you said was you can't give what you don't have. Mm-hmm. You, you simply can't give what you don't have. And if what we do, and it is what we do, in the way that we train our doctors and nurses is to, by example, if in no other way, teach them to stay so busy that they can't process not only the trauma, but the sacred piece of helping somebody pass Mm -hmm. into the next, whatever it is we go to after we die. If we can't give people the time to internalize that in a way that honors what it has asked of us, People are going to burn out. Mm-hmm. I 100% guaranteed people are going to burn out. And the flip side of that is when you let them process it, when you give them the time, when you give them the attention they need and the tools they need to actually absorb that mm-hmm. and feel not only the pain, but the beauty of it, mm-hmm. it actually makes them stronger and mm-hmm. it makes them better at what they do. What hope I have is that there is now a lot in the literature, well, not a lot, a lot more than there was 10 years ago, Mm -hmm. about what happens when we as clinicians burn out Mm -hmm. that makes a great business case for why we should be paying attention to it. There's a lot out there now about the increase in error rates, the increased incidence of medical medication errors, Mm -hmm. the increased incidence of people leaving healthcare or medicine, Mm -hmm. the increased incidence of suicide. And 
the the increased cost to healthcare because of all of those things. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot more we could mention. And in addition to that, we know, now have reasonably good ways to measure on an individual and population basis how resilient or burned out an individual or group of physicians or nurses is. Mm-hmm. So now all we need is to have the will to actually give those measurements and the data we have the ability to collect about Mm -hmm. that, Mm -hmm. the attention it deserves. Mm -hmm. And there are very few places around the country who are doing that in a really global way. Absolutely. I've, I've, I keep running into little pockets of it with really passionate providers such as yourself or passionate educators such as I can mention Dr. Kirby Clark at the U of M asked me to speak to the third year medical students on this topic. But it seems like it's little pockets, right, still. And, and I, but we need pioneers like you who continue to bring this to the forefront and continue to make this a really important issue because I don't think the general population understands the professional risks you take as a physician. And, you know, there could be many of those, but I would say the primary one could be that physicians, doctors have the highest rate of suicide of any profession. And I don't know that the general population realizes that. It's a very grueling, demanding profession, also very rewarding. As you took on your own resiliency journey, was that part of the Bush Fellowship that you mentioned? Is that where a lot of this kind of erupted for you personally? No, it's not where it erupted, but it is where I dealt with it. (laughs) Okay. I'll go way back to that philosophy degree. I grew up Catholic, and my mother once said to me before I started college, you know, I think if it was possible for you to be a priest, that's what you would do. Because I... I had this this ethical spiritual thing going on. Mm-hmm. And you know that that's just I think part of how I came into this world and so it's never been easy for me to ignore emotional or spiritual pain I'm experiencing. Mm. And it was at the point that I was having enough of that and learned of the Center for Spirituality and, and the Center for Courage and Renewal. Mm-hmm. I decided that I'd actually had the Bush Fellowship brochure on my desk for 10 years. Hmm. Every year I throw away the old one and put the new one on my desk, knowing that someday I wanted to do that, but I didn't quite know what it was I wanted to do. And it was when I understood how fragile I could be Mm -hmm. and knew that that was true for many, if not all of my colleagues And that there was something we could do to build our resilience. Mm -hmm. That's when I knew I needed to apply for the Bush Fellowship. That gives so much hope in and of itself, right? That you... You just, you held that vision for 10 years and it doesn't matter if it took you, took you 30 days, five years, 10 years to get there, you got there. You didn't ignore that, that inner voice that you needed that and, and just trusted that the time was going to come when it was ready, when you were ready. The other thing you just mentioned that I really just admire is 
the fact that you're very open and in tune with the spirit of yourself as a healer and a physician and kind of the spirit that both of us, you know, believe in some capacity needs to be part of, you know, medicine and healthcare, um, both for the patient and the professional. What are the non-traditional parts of yourself? You know, when you look at yourself as a physician, which in the traditional role, is it kind of your spirit and, and trusting your intuition that makes you maybe a little bit more non-traditional? You know, there are some ways I don't see myself as nearly as non-traditional now as I did 15 or 20 years ago when Mm -hmm. I was younger, Mm -hmm. which I want to just stop a minute and appreciate because what I would have said 15 or 20 years ago is Mm -hmm. that my focus on our inner wisdom, my Mm -hmm. focus on our ability to be empathic and emotive was what made me somewhat non-traditional. In that support group I led in the past, helping residents understand that processing what was happening with their patients and with themselves emotionally was as important as processing cognitively and from a clinical perspective, that was non-traditional. Mm-hmm, very and non-traditional. I, I think it's less um, non-traditional now, but to to say to the students I've had over the years, here's how important having empathy and having emotional intelligence is to your development as a physician. If you need to pick a physician who is mediocre in terms of their emotional intelligence and brilliant in terms of their clinical knowledge, mm-hmm. or you need to pick a physician that's brilliant in their emotional intelligence and mediocre in their clinical knowledge. And those are your only two choices, mm-hmm. unless it's a surgery that you know you absolutely have to have. Mm-hmm. Pick the doctor who has higher emotional intelligence mm-hmm. because they're going to be smart enough to know when they don't have the clinical knowledge and to get you wherever you need to be for that. Mm -hmm. If they don't understand how to relate to you in a way that they can understand who you are and what you need separate from clinical knowledge, Mm -hmm. it may not go well if you have a significant medical issue. That is probably some of the best medical advice I have ever heard, Loy. People don't remember what you do. They remember how you made them feel. Right. And so that's what will carry on no matter if it's an acute issue that resolves in a few days or a chronic issue that, you know, takes years. And the higher degree of emotional intelligence the clinician has, usually the more empathy they'll have and the willingness to look at things through a holistic lens. So incredibly powerful words and and medical advice. And I think that's what your work and your passion is now, is really developing emotionally intelligent physicians. Is that accurate? Emotionally intelligent and resilient physicians and nurses. Yeah. After you completed your Bush Fellowship, then what for you? When I left my position at Fairview as chief clinical officer, I knew that I would not be going back to that position. I was just clear that my time in that role was done. Mm -hmm. And I also believe that for the organization, it would be good for them to have somebody new in that role for 
a wide variety of reasons. So I assumed I wouldn't be going back to Fairview. Mm-hmm. I was on sabbatical for a year. Um, I continued to meet with our CEO every six weeks or so in order to finish my work becoming a facilitator at the Center for Courage and Renewal, I needed to facilitate at least one and preferably three or four retreats with a formal mentor through the center. Mm -hmm. And as I talked about that with our CEO at the time, my boss, he suggested that I do the work at Fairview, that I piloted at Fairview, which I was happy to do. And he Mm -hmm. also asked me if I'd continue to do some work I had done in the past around leadership development with with clinicians. Mm -hmm. Um, So I went back to Fairview in a 60% time position for 10 years. Up until COVID, we were offering approximately six retreats a year at Mm -hmm. Fairview for our employees. Mm -hmm. I hope that we will be back to that later this year. I'm Mm -hmm. still a casual employee at the organization, but a few years ago I retired and now the only work I do is the retreats. Mm -hmm. You get to do your purpose. And that's how you and I connected. Um, Health Fairview was, you know, used to be uh, Health East as a separate healthcare system and Fairview as a healthcare system. And you were at Fairview, I was at Health East and through some mutual colleagues and the merger of the two to M Health Fairview, you know, we fortunately met. And Loie and I have had a lot of really wonderful conversations, which, you know, has led us to be able to say things like match made in heaven, but we're kind of kindred spirits in our pursuit of healthcare professionals well-being. And when you said that match made in heaven, I was that you kind of was like, oh, that's I just love that because one of the most beautiful parts of having the point retreats is meeting clinicians such as yourself with a similar purpose and passion. I really look forward to the year ahead and feel fortunate we're in a place where we can consider having retreats because as you mentioned, we didn't for a long time. For you, when you're preparing for a retreat, what's what's kind of that process for you? And you're thinking, okay, how am I going to guide and lead, you know, healthcare professionals, nurses, physicians, social workers, um, naturopaths, you know, whomever is going to show up there. I think you and I both kind of trust they're meant to be there. How do you get yourself prepared to guide and teach others in this work? There are several different pieces to preparing for a retreat. And the most obvious is that you're an event planner, right? You and Mm -hmm. I have talked a little bit about that. Mm -hmm. I have to think through what supplies I need, who I need, except when I have you to work with and you're (laughs) thinking about those things with me, but what supplies I need, who I need, sort of what the cadence or the the pace of, of the retreat will be. And I'm thinking about all of that weeks and often months in advance of a retreat. Mm-hmm. But just prior to the retreat, I'd say there are two main ways I need to prepare. Mm-hmm. And one is by as much as I can to have a little bit of a sense of who's coming to the retreat. Mm-hmm. So I have a little bit of a sense of what they might be looking for mm-hmm. or asking for. Mm-hmm. I ask a few questions of anybody who attends, who plans on attending a retreat that I ask them to ad- answer in advance. Right. Um, but the other way that I prepare for a retreat is for the typically for the two weeks beforehand. As a as a friend and colleague of mine through the Center of Cur- for Courage and Renewal says, I'm circling my bed like a dog and just <laughs> sort of pondering um, how it is I need to prepare myself so that I can be 
as fully available to others and their needs rather than my own for mm-hmm. the period of two or three or four days, or even if it's a day-long retreat, so that I can set aside any agenda I may have myself mm-hmm. and be in service to others. And that's where it feels almost exactly like what I do as a physician mm-hmm. with a patient, is I have to set aside my agenda mm-hmm. in order to pay attention to what theirs is. Mm-hmm. What a beautiful parallel. It can take a lot of work depending upon how busy I am and what my own state of mind is. I actually try pretty hard to keep at least the week before, if not the two weeks before retreat from being too full mm-hmm. so that I'm not quite anchored for the work. I don't know about you, Lloyd, but as I'm preparing for our first retreat, you know, back since the pandemic started, I think there's even a greater importance around it because we've all been through a lot the last year and, you know, various ways and preparing for that, you know, for us as individuals to be very present as guides and leaders and then as you, a keynote speaker, also for our guests that are going to be attending, you know, just recognizing this retreat could be different than the ones we've done in the past, probably, you know, still similar themes, but there could be some differences because of us still kind of being in this acute place in the world of, of secondary or some, for some people, primary trauma. As we started to prepare for a retreat and you and Dr. Corey, who's also your um, fellow keynote presenter and, and I think fellow kindred spirit in the work also, we were talking about launching, you know, this in April, I mentioned to you something that I'll, I'll admittedly tell you now that I was a little nervous to mention it to you and Corey, which was our rebel and be well theme, our topic for 2021. And I wasn't sure how that would be embraced. And here's what I love about Loey. When I said this and brought this up, I said, Loie, you know, and Corey, how do you feel about this concept of rebel and be well? And Loie got a sparkle in her eye that was very different than anyone else, which I love. So I'm like, oh, she's got a little inner rebel in her. I would say you're an incredibly accomplished physician who's who's kind of rebelled against this mentality of I am going to always put everyone else first At the sacrifice of myself, which I think it takes somewhat of a rebellious spirit to say, you know what, I matter in this work. And to do the work well, I have to recognize that I have wellness needs. So that's how I look at you as a little bit of a healthcare rebel. How do you see yourself as when that little glimpse, you know, that little sparkle in your eye went off when I said, you know, how do you feel about this rebel and be well? What what came to mind for you in that moment? I'm rebellious in that I will... I have for a long time challenged and will continue to challenge that it is either right or good for us to deplete ourselves by being so busy and by giving so much that there's nothing left for Mm -hmm. us to rely on for ourselves and for our loved ones. Mm -hmm. This image of you can do it 14 hours a day and there are Mm -hmm. some people who can but the vast majority of us cannot mm-hmm. without it taking a really remarkable toll physically and emotionally on us. Mm-hmm. And I will continue to rebel against this notion that we're somehow more 
saintly or better Hmm. when we work that hard, when we give more than it's good for us to be giving Mm -hmm. and more than it's good for our patients for us to be giving. And people maybe more than ever need to hear that after what's happened, you know, in this last year, you know, not unique to this last year, but I think the toll on some in particular frontline individuals has been, you know, really great and vast. And for someone like you to stop and them and say, it's okay to take time for you. It's your wellness matters. Your resilience matters. Your well-being matters is permission that probably more people need than we can even, you know, recognize. And you and I have, have kind of, you know, been in this world. Um, but I am so grateful that you are willing to share that now, you know, at the spring of 2021 to help guide people, um, professionals, healthcare professionals in doing some of that personal work. Lois, so if individuals want to learn more about you, follow your work, you know, learn where you're having their, your retreats, where can they find you? How can people stay in touch with you? The easiest way is probably through my personal email, which is loielenars at comcast.net. Again, the only retreat work I'm doing right now is with you mm-hmm. in the Point Retreats and at Fairview. And the Fairview Retreats are open to a moderate number of pe- people in healthcare, but they aren't globally open sure. because they are um, heavily f- funded by Fairview. Sure. And it's one of the things they are really doing to support their employees and their affiliate employees. Which is wonderful that they are committed to that work and have supported you in leading that work. Um, that says a lot, I think, about the Fairview healthcare system. And I want to say, too, for our colleagues that have agreed to sponsor our AMA CME credits. Again, I think it's a big testimony to M Health Fairview's commitment to really looking at clinician well-being, which is wonderful. I applaud them for that. Grateful for their support in that. Loie, if we can now get to know you a little bit personally, you gave us such a beautiful picture of you and your journey professionally. It's fun for Myself to get to know you a little bit more personally, too. Go right ahead. You're ready. All right. So tell us your top three health habits that have made the biggest difference in your life. The the first two are real easy for me to define. And the first is that as part of my Bush Fellowship, one of the things that they ask you to do is to identify the ways that you will be personally attending to your own development. And one of the things on that list for me was to develop a daily reflective practice. I will confess there are periods of time when I don't do it daily, but Mm -hmm. I aim to spend at least 10 minutes and often about 30 minutes in a daily reflective practice. Mm -hmm. With a warning, I'm going to get on a soapbox. The data from a neuropsychological standpoint is out there even if you do it for five minutes a day, it makes a difference in your health, mm-hmm. your physical health, your longevity, your emotional health, your spiritual health. So that that would be number one. Number two would be about five years ago. I've always been a pretty physically active person, but about five years ago, I became more invested in vigorous cross 
training type of exercise. And Mm -hmm. it's not that I'm a super athlete. It's just that I really attend to taking care of my health physically Mm -hmm. and continue to do that. And I'm probably stronger and certainly in better shape than I've ever been in my life. How fantastic is that? I love hearing that. And the third is the one where I struggle the most, but that's to eat a really, really nutritious, largely plant-based diet. Mm -hmm. And the reason I struggle with it is the sweets and the chips still show up every (laughs) once in a while on a pretty regular basis. (laughs) I like and appreciate your honesty because I think they just show up, especially in America, quite frequently for us, right? So it's the reality. It's the reality of it. And you're sweet and salty is what I hear. Yep, that would be true. Mm -hmm. And you know, I'm going to give you a big accolade, Lori, because I loved our last Zoom call that you said, you know, I have a hard stop at this time. And I loved the reason why you said I have an appointment with my personal trainer. And I was like, good for you. Let's hard stop that call because that appointment's more important, which is what you just said. So kudos to you. You're an inspiration, truly. I love hearing that. Who is your favorite music artist? That one's really tough for me because I have a lot. As I think you know, Mm -hmm. um, I come from a very musical family and music is core to my life. But I would say top of the list is the Whalen Jennies, if you know who they are. I do know who they are. They're awesome. And if I had to pick a male artist, it would probably be Sweet Baby James. Yeah. So James Taylor is Uh also a favorite. Okay. What's your favorite way to spend a day? My favorite way to spend a day would be to have a day that allowed me to do some reading early in the day and that meditation then allowed me to spend time doing something that's chore like believe it or not hmm. that's that's just part of the daily rhythm of a life whether that's laundry or cleaning yeah. believe it or not yeah. you know being with being with my daughter and son-in-law and our, and their new baby it's been a joy for me to be able to do that kind of thing for them followed by some sort of physical activity ideally with somebody so mm-hmm. yesterday it was a a long vigorous hike with my husband oh i should add in there a short nap or <laughs> at least a short time to put my feet up and read in the middle of the day uh-huh that sounds like a wonderful yeah. day a good combination yeah. of restoration and activity. Okay, couple quick this or that questions. Are you a tea or a coffee drinker? Tea. Okay. Introvert or extrovert? Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. Texting or talking? Oh, for sure talking. For sure talking. Okay. Black and white or gray? For sure gray. <laughs> Quality of life or quantity of life? Quality of life. I selfishly picked these questions because I was really curious. And I I think I'm I'm continuing to get to know your very kindred and incredible spirit. So that just um, was really fun to go through with you. Thanks for taking the time to do that. It gives you a glimpse. You know, it's funny how little this or that questions can give you really a glimpse into someone's 
Um, maybe it's your philosophical mind or your kind of innate sense of being, but you definitely have a spirit in there that's that's really incredible. And I'm, I'm so excited to do the work that we're going to be doing together in April. Glowy, with that, I'm going to close our interview and conversation today with kind of reiterating that people can continue to find you via your personal email that you shared. It sounds like there's going to be continued retreats at Fairview, hopefully in the year ahead. So Fair M Health Fairview employees in the Twin Cities area can keep an eye on that. And then grateful that Loie is sharing her wisdom and expertise with us at two retreats at the Point Retreats, one in April, one in August, both of 2021. Those are for healthcare professionals and will offer uh, continuing medical education credits around Loie and Dr. Corey's work in the courage and renewal work. So with that, I would just want to remind people, if you'd like to find out more, you can look up more about us at The Point Retreats or our social media handles, Point Retreats on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thank you for listening today. We hope this podcast inspires you to rebel and be well. I hope you'll join us for our next podcast when I will be interviewing Chef Jeremy Renicky. Jeremy has always been passionate about great food and loves helping others take command of their own kitchens. He teaches nutritious and delicious cooking classes and provides one-on-one consultations for patients and the community. Find out why I call Jeremy, Chef Jeremy Extraordinaire. You've been listening to the Rebel and Be Well podcast, hosted by Krista Rimel, registered nurse, founder, and CEO of Lifestyle Medicine Retreat Center, The Point Retreats, which is located amidst the woods and waters of northern Minnesota. If you'd like to ask Krista Rimel or one of our past or upcoming guests a question that will be aired on a future show, simply call 612-352-9177 and leave a message. Please know that when you leave a message, it may be used in whole or in part on a future podcast episode. Again, that phone number is 612-352-9177. Please hit subscribe on whatever podcast source you found us on and rate and review our show. We'd love to hear feedback. Rebel and Be Well is recorded at the studios of Minnesota Podcasting located in St. Paul, Minnesota. Find them online at mnpodcasting.com. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individual participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views, opinions, or policies of the Point Retreats, Minnesota Podcasting, or any other organization. All medical issues, concerns, diagnoses, medications, and treatments must be managed by your doctor. We do not replace any clinician's medical advice or treatment. Join us next time for Rebel and Be Well. Be Well.